Hi, Michaela LaFrac here. The podcast you are about to listen to has been edited for clarity and brevity. This is Vermont Edition. I'm Michaela LaFrac. If you read the tabloids or follow certain celebrities on social media, chances are you have heard of a drug called Ozempic. It's FDA approved for treating diabetes. Its cousin, Wagovi, is for treating obesity. The FDA approved Wagovi three years ago. And since then, people ranging from Sharon Osbourne to Elon Musk have talked openly about how they've used these types of drugs, known as GLP-1 drugs, to lose weight. Here in Vermont, more than a quarter of residents live with obesity. There's a push at the statehouse to require Medicaid and private insurers to cover GLP-1 drugs because they can be expensive and their usage is growing. Today on the show, we're going to be joined by a panel of doctors on hand to discuss how these drugs work, their health benefits, and their possible shortcomings. But first, we are joined by State Representative Mari Cordes of Addison County. She's been a registered nurse for more than 30 years. Representative Cordes, welcome to the show. Thank you, Michaela. I'm so glad to be here. And we are so appreciative of you taking the time out of your day. Now, Representative, there is a bill in the state Senate, S-164, that would require insurers to cover the costs of these medications when they're prescribed by a doctor. You have also introduced a companion bill, a very similar bill, in the House. And you testified in front of the Senate in support of S-164. Now, that testimony was, um, it was very moving. It was a very personal testimony. You talked about your own lived experience. Can you tell us why you decided to share some of your own story? I'd be happy to. This is such an important topic um, and a topic that needs to come out of the shadows, um, shadows caused by the stigma associated with uh, obesity. And um, as someone who um, is considered obese, I will say that many of us prefer the term fat. Um, there are thin people, there are fat people, there are small people, there are big people. Um, either one is, is fine with me, but um, I'm in a unique position as a, a legislator, a policymaker with uh, power to impact um, many people in Vermont um, as a healthcare professional. And um, as you said, as a person with lived experience being fat, um, to help make uh, change. And the celebrity um, light being shined on medications like Ozempic or um, Wigovi or Zepbound um, has been helpful in a sense that it's, it's, um, and problematic. It's been both. Um, it's highlighted the commonly held fat phobic beliefs um, and helped um, change the conversation. So my, uh, my bill, uh, S, excuse me, H765 um, and the Senate bill that I testified on um, are an important start to the conversation um, about healthcare um, at every size. Mm. And 
the um, GLP-1 medications are just one part of that, but it's going to be critical for us as a culture to address um, the systemic and personal um, bias and fat phobic beliefs that um, prevent many fat people from accessing healthcare because um, they're told that their viral infection um, would be better if, if they just lost weight. And instead of getting care that any other person that wasn't fat would get for that condition, they're told to lose weight, lose weight. Um, mm-hmm. So that's a long way of saying there's, we have a lot of work to do. Um, and I think both S164 and 765 are, are, a good start in the Vermont policy arena. Well, Representative Cordes, you, you brought up fat phobia just now. Um, if you're comfortable sharing with us, I, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that that fat phobia, as you termed it, has it impacted your own life. Um, if there were moments throughout your life, either as a child or as an adult, where where you you felt those negative reactions um, to you, to your body, from the outside world. Happy to. Um, as a, a girl, um, I was not fat, but um, the the cultural pressure for um, girls, especially to be a certain size, um, has impacted many of us and continues to impact many of us as kids. And my own grandmother and mother were not immune. um, And I was often told um, that I was fat, I should lose weight, I should, you know, you should only have uh, yogurt as an entire meal, not as a a healthy snack. and and then the the media, the cultural, the advertising world, and the impossible standards set out for especially women, but for everyone. Um, and this this um, this bias was um, also founded decades ago with the creation of the uh, BMI, the basal uh, metabolic body mass index, excuse me, um, decades ago, which the BMI is not, um, was not created scientifically. um, And it was based on the body types of white European men. Um, It was that measurement was later picked up by the eugenics movement, um, and then by insurance companies. So there is um, movement now in the in the healthcare world to get away from the use of a very problematic measure of BMI. And there are other um, methods to be used. Um, but back to the pressure as a, a kid and as a young woman, um, I did a lot of um, cyclical weight loss. Um, I tried... Uh, juice fasting for two weeks and then in one week and then um, all the all the diets um, and I was a very active person I'm very strong um, more more muscle mass than most women um, at any age um, and I, I was again I was not fat at the time but I that pattern of uh, repeated cyclical weight loss 
um, has definitely caused problems for me, especially after menopause. Mm-hmm. Um, and while I have um, come to um, accept and love my body for everything that has done for me, um, the, the physical, the metabolic impact of all of that um, has made it very difficult for me to lose weight. And I'm um, a weightlifter. I lift weights. I can lift heavy weights um, and was lifting heavy weights until we discovered I had an aortic aneurysm. So I still lift weights, but I'm not lifting what I would really like to, to mm. lift. Um, I'm very active in my job as a nurse, um, markedly less active as a legislator <laughs> sitting in chairs all over the building. Um, and I'm someone who follows my macros. Um, I eat a clean diet um, and it's still an issue for me. Mm. Um, so there are many people like me for in my uh, health measures. So the things that you, I would be seen by a healthcare provider for um, I, I do not have uh, hypertension. My blood pressures are good. Um, my labs are good. Um, I um, do have arthritis, which is um, being having obesity, being fat. Uh, definitely is a risk factor for arthritis, along with um, genetic um, risk. Mm. So. Um, I'm, well, I'm grateful that uh, we can do anything to help people um, in my situation, but anybody, you don't, um, that's the important thing about um, weight inclusivity and the health at every size. Um, you don't have to be better at this or better at that. You're just a human being who needs health care. Um, and so um, personalizing health care um, to the measures that we use for everybody else um, is is really important. And these medications are just part of that. So may not work for everybody. Um, I do believe that all the, there are other elements of health that are, are critically important. Um, that's reducing stress, getting enough sleep, drinking enough water, mm-hmm. um, and getting enough, um, having enough activity and mobility. Representative Cordes, I'm I'm curious what the the reactions were from your colleagues to your testimony in the Senate. What kind of conversations did you have after after that? Um, the my colleagues, a were grateful that I made myself vulnerable um, and spoke on this, and also were. Um, some were surprised. Um, they didn't realize that there are many fat people who are healthy. Um, yes, uh, being fat does there statistically there are risk factors related related to being obese, but um, it helped them understand that again, there are many fat people who are healthy. Mm. Um, I think the other, another thing that came out was, uh, for example, Blue Cross Blue Shield does already cover um, GLP-1 medications, including uh, ZepBound. Um, so that wasn't such a, as much of an issue as um, 
the cost sharing for the patient, even after uh, coupon manufacturer coupons, um, the the monthly price is still cost prohibitive for for most people. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm curious about your own experience with the cost of of taking a GLP one drug. Um, is it manageable under your insurance? No, for me, it's not. I have Blue Cross Blue Shield. Um, and uh, a plan on the exchange, and it's a, a platinum plan um, in the with the manufacturer coupon applied, um, the monthly cost to me would be three hundred and sixty two dollars. And I, I want to say that um, I originally for a long time resisted um, taking the GLP one um, medication because, one of my issues in working with a nutritionist for two years was that often I wasn't eating enough. Hmm. Um, and I know that one of the side effects of the GLP one medications is um, loss of appetite. And I didn't, I was worried that I was going to get myself, uh, you know, and even deeper of a hole with my metabolism while I'm working out and demanding a lot for my body and trying to get enough protein um, in that it would be even harder for me. Um, and then by the time I decided to try it, um, it was two months away from me being 65. So I would, Medicare doesn't cover um, these medications. So I would only be able to take it for a couple of months anyway. So um, it's at least for the time being out of my reach. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I hope um by starting this conversation on the policy level, we can begin to make it more uh, possible as one tool in the toolkit for fat people. Mm. And then Representative Cordes, we're about to be joined on the show by a panel of doctors. You yourself are a nurse um, and have also been a patient. Uh, I'm curious if you have... Any thoughts on how on the the disconnect that is sometimes felt between the medical establishment and patients, um, fat patients who feel dismissed or judged or might be wary of starting a conversation around whether one of these drugs might be um, a path that they should go down? Um, and you're in a really unique spot because you could have been on sort of both sides of that conversation in a way. I have witnessed for myself the evolution of healthcare providers on on this issue, uh, not in not specific to um, medications like Ozempic, uh, and I'm happy to say that um, at least from my personal experience with my providers, um, they they are beginning to get it, um, and some have understood this for for a number of years so i think it is improving i think there are still providers out there that um may not be up to date um with uh the current science uh around this and the the social issues um they're real the barriers are real if a patient has a negative experience um, when they already feel vulnerable because a they're not feeling well, b um, they know that uh, fat phobia, fat stigma exists and has impacted them on a daily basis, and then to have someone like a provider who 
ideally they would trust, um, treat them in a way that just amplified um, and harmed them around the issue of Mm -hmm. stigma and bias um, that that still happens. It's real. Um, And I, I think that these bills in the house and the Senate um, by normalizing um, healthcare for, for fat people and bringing the conversation up um, will help. And I'm super appreciative of the, uh, the providers that are about to, take over the conversation. State Representative Mari Cordes of Addison County is the sponsor of H765, a bill to require insurers to cover drugs that treat diabetes and weight loss. Representative, thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your story, not just with the legislature, but but with our Vermont Edition community as well. Thank you, Michaela. We are joined now by Vermont's Health Commissioner, Dr. Mark Levine. Dr. Levine, welcome back to the show. Great to be back. Thank you. And in the studio with me is Dr. Matt Gilbert, an endocrinologist and professor at the UVM UVM Medical Center in the Division of Endocrinology and Diabetes. Dr. Gilbert, welcome. Michaela, thanks for having me. Now, Dr. Levine, we're having this conversation in part because of these bills in the House and Senate to require insurers to cover GLP-1 drugs. We also see a lot of national headlines all the time about the quote-unquote obesity epidemic. What does the state of Vermont specifically study when it comes to obesity and obesity rates? What do we know? Well, we know that Vermont actually fares much better than many other states. The U.S. rate of obesity is around 42%. And then you add to that people who are overweight Uh, and you come up to uh, literally a 70% number for the uh, country. Vermont, on the other hand, 27% obesity rate, 35% overweight. In our adolescence or youth, uh, we also uh, notice that we are slightly lower than the country. Obesity rate is 14% in Vermont, 16 plus percent in the country. Uh, And that's a particular concern, of course, because there's a a linkage between um, increasing rates of obesity in adolescence with increasing rates of type 2 diabetes and um, setting someone up for chronic disease later in life. So we are always um, very much focused on this area, um, though it doesn't make the news as much as many other areas uh, of public health concern. But the basic thing that was said earlier is that private insurers are now beginning to start covering medications like this. Medicare explicitly is prohibited for uh, covering uh, weight loss medications. And Medicaid is uh, a state-by-state process. And I'm very proud that our Department of Vermont Health Access is actually reviewing this entire concept, uh, making all of the uh, financial estimates and and looking for what the returns on investment might be. Um, And they'll be coming out with reports on that, I'm sure, very shortly. Mm. So these are uh, abundant public health issues. Um, We don't want people to take the focus away because we have these glamorous new drugs 
take the focus away from the value of nutritious eating and physical activity. And that goes for whether people need to lose weight or whether they want to not gain weight uh, and they want to live a healthy lifestyle. Uh, so even if people have a problem with their weight, they can benefit very much from physical activity and nutritious eating habits, even if they don't lose weight through uh, adopting those habits. Mm. Um, we do have a you know, nationwide issue with chronic disease, and these are ways to help uh, prevent that. Mm. I, I, I should say, though, from a public health standpoint, um, we do have issues regarding, of course, access to anything, whether it's health care, whether it's medications like this. And we also are very focused on the fact that as uh, the representative court is uh, very nicely personal personified uh, and personalized in her presentation today, um, there's a real uh, need to have a balance between the impact of obesity on the health of a population or of an individual and the fact that there clearly are adverse health effects that can occur, but also recognizing that not everyone whose weight is higher than it might could be by a BMI or other measurement um, is going to have those effects. And in fact, we need to acknowledge the fact that there is in our society significant discrimination, stigma, uh, shaming uh, that can occur. And want to make sure that people understand that and we live in a more civil and respectful place uh, and community uh, because those are equally uh, adverse outcomes that don't need to occur mm -hmm. um, because someone's body mass index is labeled as higher than it should be. Mm. And external factors like poverty and stress and even location can impact obesity as well. Um, Dr. Gilbert, the history of these drugs that we're discussing today, these GLP-1 drugs, is pretty fascinating. They essentially mimic a hormone that's found in the saliva of a lizard. Is that right? Can you tell us more? So the initial class of these medications, uh, the initial one was approved was uh, a medication called Exenatide or Bieta in 2005. So um, we've been working with this class of medication as endocrinologists since 2005. And the initial um, drugs that were developed were developed from a molecule that was found in the saliva of a Gila monster. Um, um, but the current ones that we're talking about, like um, semaglutide and dulaglutide and some of the, the ones we're talking about now, those are actually um, human GLP-1 mimics. So those are, are, are modeled after the human GLP-1 hormone, which is a hormone along with its kind of cousin GIP that are released from our, our gut or our small intestine when we eat. Mm. And the purpose of these hormones is really to, it makes sense to have a hormonal signal in our gut that tells our pancreas, hey, there's food here. It's, it's time we, we release insulin to help um, move that glucose into the cells for energy. So mm. um, it was in the 1980s when we actually understood that there was this signal and it wasn't until 2005 where we had our first kind of pharmacologic agent to help with this this area as we found out that in patients with type 2 diabetes this this these incretin hormones don't work as well or aren't as uh, at sufficient levels as someone without diabetes. Mm. 
fascinating how, how that how the the uh, the trajectory of the development of one of these drugs works. Uh, we have a call online from Bill in Burlington. Let's go there next. Bill, you're on the air. Go ahead. Oh, hi, Michaela. Thanks for uh, taking my call. I I'm one of those unlucky few. I'm 68 years old. I'm not overly obese, but I, I do have extra pounds. And uh, I found with my, my uh, primary care doctor that the Wellbutrin that I'm on has been less and less effective, it seems, at keeping my A1C down. And uh, he suggested the Ozempic. And my copay for the Ozempic would be $350 a month. And as I understand it, that's one injection per day or per week. And I just, it, it's certainly cost prohibitive for me. I'm trying to find other ways to mm. do it. But I, I was uh, just thinking about what the representative said earlier, and I'm curious what the other two doctors have to say. Mm. Thank you. I'll take the... Thank you, Bill, for, for sharing your story with us. Dr. Gilbert, is this is this a, a common narrative that you hear with your patients? Yeah, Bill, so thanks so much for the question. I think it is one of the biggest challenges with regards to these medications uh, is their cost. Um, the American Diabetes estimates that out-of-pocket expenses for these medications would be somewhere between, depending on where you live in the United States, somewhere between $800 and $1,000 a month. So even with insurance and even as the representative talked about, even with, with good quality commercial insurance, um, sometimes the, it is cost prohibitive to be on these medications, which has such such benefits. So uh, so cost is an issue. There are a lot of, the, I can tell you that over the last several years, coverage of these medications has improved tremendously, particularly mm -hmm. for our patients with diabetes. Um, you can imagine if you're an insurance company, if you have a medication that lowers someone's weight, that improves their blood sugars. Uh, a number of these medications have actually been shown to reduce the risk of cardiovascular death, non-fatal myocardial infarction or heart attack, and non-fatal strokes. Um, in addition, they cause very little low blood sugars when used by themselves or in combinations with other medications with low blood sugars. So there's a tremendous benefit to these medications that the insurance companies are catching up to, and they're really starting to cover these better. I wish Bill had a better story that you know where the coverage was much better. And I think the representative makes a great point that if we can begin to make these drugs more affordable um, for individuals on the individual basis, we're going to make a point. I, the interesting, um, you know, this is a complex issue, as, as I'm sure the commissioner would love to hear his thoughts, is that these are very expensive medications. And if we start providing these medications to people on Medicaid, or if the federal government decides with Medicare, we're talking about opening up, you know, as we talked about, 70% of Americans could potentially um, meet criteria to go on one of these medications. While the overall health benefit for these individuals could be tremendous, and as a nation, we would save you know billions or trillions of dollars long term on preventing or or delaying chronic health disease. How much of the cost is going to be upfront to then get those benefits that may come decades later? So that's mm. the the real question for health economists and, and policymakers in, in our country and in our state. Yeah, it's interesting. And I've seen the preliminary estimates in Vermont forecast that these that if if insurers are required to cover these drugs, it could could hit about seventy five million dollars annually. Uh, Dr. Levine, I know it's it's not your position to, to make that call one way or another, but I am curious for your thoughts as Vermont's health commissioner, what you think about this, this debate that's going on in the legislature and what role, if any, you have for advocating for one side or the other. Yeah, I do think that um, we do have to be careful, as you point out, but um, I'm always presenting sort of return on investment kind of um, policy to the legislature for a variety of healthcare issues. 
So this one would be no different. I do have to say, though, that it is very challenging, uh, especially during financially stressful times for states or for the country, um, for people to look that far ahead and say, oh, my gosh, we'll reduce all the heart attacks, we'll reduce all the heart surgeries, we'll reduce diabetes amputations and dialysis patients, etc. That's wonderful. Let's invest in this. Uh, it becomes a very hard equation to provide all that money up front many times. With these drugs, there's, a, I think, a significant problem in the fact that, number one, um, we don't have any studies of weight loss medications, I don't think, that go beyond about four years. And the drug that was tested for that long was Orlistat, which I dare say almost no one would be using now uh, to treat uh, their weight problem. But um, so these drugs will need a little more time um, under the microscope, if you will, for sure. Hmm. The other aspect is, um, as uh, Dr. Gilbert will attest to, the interesting thing about medication for weight loss is that, first of all, um, individual responses vary. Though with these drugs, we're seeing percentages weight reduction that are not seen in the previous generations of drugs. When um, people reach a plateau and then they stay there, and then the most important feature is when you discontinue the drug, and we're hearing this from both celebrities and uh, others in the public eye, are that the weight gets regained. Mm -hmm. And so how long will an individual want to remain on a medication uh, that could become potentially a lifelong medication? So these are sort of the counter issues that really uh, one has to balance in with the fact that we're going to potentially improve a lot of healthcare costs down the road. Mm. Well, I, I do want to jump in here because we have another uh, caller on the line, Dr. Kim Sampson. Uh, she's an OBGYN at Southwestern Vermont Hospital in Bennington, and uh, she works with patients uh, who are prescribed GLP-1 drugs. Uh, Dr. Sampson, I I'm so curious to hear what kinds of conversations you have with your patients before you decide that using one of these drugs is something that they should try. Yeah, hi, thank you so much for um, having me on the call. It's so lovely to, to be able to um, sort of open up these conversations uh, here in Vermont. So um, so I do run a, a practice here where we uh, very significantly look at uh, women's health um, and the impact of um, obesity and weight management. Um, also combining um, the, the long-term behavioral changes um, along with um, some of these uh, medications. Um, and it's not all about the GLP-1s. Um, so we are very fortunate these are things that are um, definitely an, an additional toolkit for us. Um, but um, certainly not every single patient that walks through the door um, would A, be eligible, um, good candidates. But obviously the biggest piece that we have right now um, is coverage and availability of these medications. Um, so it's a very... A very individualized conversation that we should be having, no different to everything else that we do in healthcare. Um, the commissioner had just kind of mentioned um, about uh, regain and and, and um, sort of the, the long term potential of these medications. Um, if we look at it through the lens of a disease process, which the AMA have been doing um, since um, 2013, it is a, it is a long term um, component, um, but that's 
different for all um, healthcare conditions over time. So if we're managing someone's diabetes or their hypertension, we don't get them to a, a normal level and discontinue medications, but they may not stay on the same medication. Mm. Um, so we can certainly sort of step down therapies. Um, we're very much focusing on the additional components. So if somebody is taking a medication, they're having a good response, maybe we are able to really focus on their nutrition. And maybe we're really able to focus on their activity level. Um, they're having less joint pain. They're able to enroll in, in different activity plans. Um, maybe we improve their sleep. Um, they're now getting their seven to nine hours of sleep um, a night because we're kind of uh, focusing on decreased pain. Um, they're not getting up and doing nighttime snacking. Um, I think it's a big, big picture um, and should be an incredibly individualized plan for our patients. I am curious, though, Dr. Sampson, if you're getting people coming to you uh, asking questions about these drugs solely because of what they've heard in the media or on social media from celebrities. Oh, definitely. And I think it goes in, in both directions. I've had people that have come in and they're like, I don't want that stuff um, because, you know, that's that's not mm. um, how I identify. And a lot of other people that certainly have not heard um, any of um, the, the medications that we now have available as our toolkit. Um, so I, I think it's, it's again, it's complicated. Um, I think in regards to explaining that these medicines have been available for a long time. We've been using medications off-label. We do that in practice all the time. By that, I mean that these medications were originally um, approved from a, a diabetic standpoint, um, but we saw the benefit from, a, from weight loss. We've now had the trials to support that, um, but many of us have been using these medications predating that um, and then have obviously the clinical practice and experience with them. Um, but people coming in and, and expecting there to be a, a magical medicine, that, that's, that's not, not a thing mm -hmm. um, because this is a disease process that is complicated. Mm. Um, there is the behavioral health component, the nutrition component, sleep, hormones, menopause, like all of these different pieces can play a part. And I think sort of getting to the, to the point of that and, and, and picking it for each individual patient is, is really the way to go. Mm. Well, Dr. Sampson, we so appreciate you calling in. And I, I also really appreciate that point you're making about how, how some folks can see these as sort of a magic drug. Dr. Gilbert, I saw you nodding along yeah, as she said that. Michaela, I think both Dr. Levine and Dr. Sampson make a really important point is that all the clinical trials that we have with these tremendous weight loss with these medications, all these patients in these randomized clinical trials had um, diet and exercise or lifestyle modifications as part of, of their treatment. So it's important to note that that we may not necessarily see as robust weight loss in if, if these lifestyle and diet modifications weren't included. And that's one of the things that comes in a challenge in a rural state as well is that, um, yes, we could prescribe these medications and yes, they work well, but if the lifestyle and dietary modifications aren't included with it and then subsequently continued there afterwards or maybe with a pause or discontinuation of the medication or how we're going to decide to use these drugs over time, you know, how, how does a rural Vermonter who doesn't have sidewalks and lives on a, uh, a dirt road, um, how do they walk safely? How do they mm. go out and exercise? Um, how if they live far away from, um, you know, if they live in a food desert or don't have access to, to healthy food choices, all these things uh, are kind of part of that complex discussion that the commissioner has with regards to to public health and, and population health when it comes to these medications. We also have a number of calls coming in. We have Dawn in Bristol on the line. Dawn, you're on the air. Go ahead. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I, uh, I was on Ozempic for six months, starting a year ago last October, 
And in February, I had to go to the emergency room with severe constipation, which is very embarrassing. Uh, however, I continued on the drug, taking laxatives every day, and six weeks later, I was, again, in the emergency room with severe constipation. And so then I went off of Ozempic because it was not being helpful, although I did lose about 10 pounds during that period. When I went off it, I gained 30, and I am just now... Just now, I only have seven more to lose to be back to where I was before this whole thing started. So I just think people should be careful about what they're asking for and what they get. Mm. Well, thank you, Don, for sharing that. And your comment actually reminds me of an email that we received from Mariana, who wrote about her experience taking a Wagovi prescription last year. They write that it made them incredibly nauseous, so much so that they lost 16 pounds in six days. Uh, they continue, and I'm quoting here, my whole family wanted me to stay on the medication so I could lose enough weight to get a gastric bypass. I gave it three months, and in July, I just couldn't stand it, and so I gave up on Wagovi. I gained all the weight back almost immediately, even though I was still getting sick as I tried to get back to eating my normal diet. No one told me that you're supposed to be on this medication for the rest of your life. Uh, Dr. Gilbert, do you hear stories like these ones? Yeah, Michaela, absolutely. The The most common side effects of these GLP drugs are gastrointestinal and nausea, vomiting, um, diarrhea, and constipation, like, like we heard from our caller, are, are, are unfortunately fairly common. I mean, if you look at the clinical trials, somewhere between 10%, maybe to high as 35, 40% of patients may experience one or, or some of those particular GI side effects, which are the most common. Thankfully, unfortunately, you know, not the experience of, of the folks who have written in and called in here today, but um, at least from the clinical trials, which are not each individual patient that we put this on, but in the clinical trials, the GI side effects tended to be mild to moderate. They tended to go away over time, particularly with the longer acting GLP-1s, like we see the once weekly injections. So the vast majority of patients are able to tolerate these medications long term. Um, that's saying there is it is common to have GI side effects early on with these medications, and it's important to talk to, to have your provider talk to you about avoiding large large meals and avoiding fatty foods and doing some things that could potentially help you avoid or, or reduce the um, uh, impact of these GI side mm -hmm. effects, but they are real. They happen to a, a significant amount of folks, but thankfully it looks like um, the vast majority of people are able to tolerate these. And, and when you're not able to tolerate them, like we heard from some of our callers, it's important to, to let your uh, provider know. Um, I've taken people off these medications as well because they just mm. haven't been able to tolerate them. Thankfully, that's the majority, the minority of patients, but uh, there are patients who cannot tolerate these medications and have to come off them. Mm. We also received an email from Leo and Maria, who wrote about a number of their concerns, including that uh, they say there haven't been enough long-term studies about the side effects of Ozempic and pointed to the histories of Fenfen and Redux, which are two weight loss drugs that were, were approved by the FDA and then eventually recalled for being unsafe. Uh, Dr. Levine, you'll be more familiar with those than I am. Um, do, do you have any concerns about those uh, the lack of, of you know, long-term studies that, you know, span decades on these drugs? Oh, I think clearly we should all some concern, but we should also be reassured. Uh, Dr. Gilbert, in some of his introductory comments, mentioned, uh, you know, going back to 2005 or so with an earlier set of drugs that uh, aren't the same as the ones we're using now, but we're sort of in the continuum of development. So, 
we can be a bit reassured, reassured by that. We also know that these drugs are so much more effective than some of the ones you mentioned, like FenPen, uh, that the risk-benefit ratio probably changes uh, because there is so much more benefit that one can get from this set of drugs. You know, these drugs, you know, we're seeing, you know, 10%, 15% uh, reductions in weight. Uh, one could potentially maybe get to 20% even, which were really unheard of with prior generations of drugs. Uh, so it's a very different risk-benefit ratio. When we know that just 5 to 10% reduction in weight is enough to do a lot with decreasing one's cardiovascular disease risk, uh, even if one is not diabetic, to reduce the risk of diabetes if they've been in a pre-diabetes state. So we shouldn't lose track of them. But again, like any other medication, the longer clinicians get to uh, use them, see their experience in the real world, uh, we learn a lot because we don't always learn as much from the controlled trials that were done, which are only in a finite period of time. Hmm. Well, let's bring in one more caller. We have John in Heinsberg on the line. John, you're on the air. Go ahead. Yeah, um, well, from a personal point of view, from taking the drug for several years now, I've had really great uh, results. My A1C stays below a 6.5. It's like my appetite center in my brain just switches off. I don't want to eat anymore. And uh, I've gone from 250 to 178 as far as my weight is concerned. But the biggest problem that I've had um, getting the drug through the VA is I had to go through a lot of hoops to get it prescribed initially. And my biggest problem has been them running out of the drug. And what I was told by a nurse once through the VA was if I run out, go down to the ER at the White River Medical Center, and if they have it in stock, they'll give you a shot to carry you over. But I, I do run out occasionally. I'm a week or two weeks past due. And uh, But every other thing about the drug has been uh, really remarkable for me. Mm. Dr. Gilbert. Yeah, I think, unfortunately, that's a, a fairly common story, or at least it was particularly a year or two ago where there was particularly a shortage of Ozempic. And, you know, we talked about the double-edged sword of the popularity of these medications and how certainly the, the, the use of these medications by celebrities, and Jimmy Kimmel mentioned it uh, on one of the award shows, certainly raised awareness of these medications and potentially um, brought people to the table that maybe weren't aware that these medications were available. But what it also did is it it, it allowed for a lot of off-label um, use of these medications um, like Ozempic that's designed for patients with diabetes and, and, and FDA approved for patients with diabetes for cosmetic weight loss, um, like we talked about with some of the celebrities. So you had a lot of people using Ozempic off-label before Wagovi or even when, when Wagovi was available, which is Ozempic and Wagovi are the same exact molecule. They just have a different name and they're in different doses. Uh, the Wagovi is in higher doses for use with weight loss than, say, Ozempic is in lower doses for patients with diabetes. Um, and what we found was is that our patients with diabetes who, yes, benefit from the weight loss from these medications, but really clearly benefit from the A1C lowering and from the lack of hypoglycemia and from the cardiovascular 
particular protection that these medications were shown to have, all of a sudden didn't have access to their Ozempic because people were using it off-label for cosmetic and and non-cosmetic weight loss. Um, I think we're starting to work through that uh, better at this point where patients are getting prescribed Wagovi for weight loss and Ozempic for diabetes. Um, But there's still uh, potentially supply issues for for both medications at times in different doses um, based on suppliers, et cetera. So it is is something that we need to work on overcoming. And the the manufacturer of these medications are aware of that and are trying to ramp up production. It's just not something that you can start overnight and start increasing and ramping up production of a medication. These production lines take years to develop and and hundreds of millions of dollars to produce. So um, we're hoping to to have supplies uh, in a much better range here soon. And as we wrap up here, I'm wondering uh, briefly, both Dr. Levine and Dr. Gilbert, if, if you could share one, one piece of, of um, either guidance or encouragement for somebody who's been listening today's, to today's show, maybe feeling it quite personally and is considering having a conversation about one of these drugs with their medical provider, Dr. Gilbert. Sure. I mean, I think hearing the representatives uh, test about her testimony and how um, she experienced, I, I kind of thought about our own waiting room and our own exam tables, et cetera. And we do have larger chairs, but I, I can, I'm picturing my exam tables at someone who with maybe who was fat or obese wouldn't necessarily be able to, um, to sit on on a regular basis. So I'm thinking of some of those things as I was hearing her story. Mm. These medications are great tools. They are more effective for weight loss than anything we've ever had before with the exception of bariatric surgery. Um, They can be more widely prescribed by primary care doctors. You don't need to see a specialist for them, etc. There are side effects, and we've heard from some of our callers as well, um, but those side effects tend to be usually mild to moderate and can be overcome over time. Um, And also this, you know, Wagovi in particular is a medication that's been shown to reduce cardiovascular risk by 20% in patients who took them. So, um, you know, I think this is a, a great conversation to have. And Dr. Levine, we only have about 30 seconds left. Sure. Uh, Ditto to everything that Dr. Gilbert said. Uh, We have a hope for these medications. Uh, That 20% reduction he just mentioned was in people who had uh, obesity and heart disease. The hope, I think, is going to be in people who just are overweight uh, that they may see similar reductions in cardiovascular risk. That trial will take longer to take. My last sort of public health message is you know, we do have surgery, we do have medications, but we also have lifestyle changes to make. 